This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBiz X. Hey, this is Andrew Helmich from Impact Images and the PhotoBiz X Podcast, and welcome to episode 23 of the Photography Experiment Podcast. We're going to jump into this interview with Michael Bland in just a second. I know you're going to love Michael because he is doing what we all want to do as photographers. He's making a living from photography, a great living from photography. He's got these incredibly big clients like Adidas, Nike, Sky, BBC and Puma. On top of that, he's doing exactly what he wants to do. And that's shooting personal work. And it was that personal work where I first learned about Michael because he was launching his new book, Mountains, Epic Cycling Climbs. And of course, it was featuring the Tour de France. And as a keen cyclist, I was excited to get Michael on the show and rapt when he said yes to this interview. So we're gonna get into that in just a minute. Before we get started, I wanna say a big thanks to today's show sponsor, The Image Salon. They are the outsourcing specialist for wedding photographers. I'm gonna tell you more about them during the episode today. And then following the interview with Michael Bland, I've got a mini interview slash chat with another epic photographer, a wedding photographer, Gabe McClintock. So stick around for that after the closing jingle in today's episode. All right, let's get on with the show. Today's interview was going to be a selfish one for me. I first learned about Michael after seeing an ad for Phase One cameras showing him working in the high mountains of France, photographing cycling, my passion. The Phase One ad was based around Michael's new book, Mountains, Epic Cycling Climbs, which was three years in the making. It's a book that brings together a photography project that focuses on bringing the physical landscape to the stories and reputations of cycling's biggest climbs. Now, after having a closer look at Michael's work, I realised there was so much more to him as a photographer than cycling and landscape photography. He spent six years working for Getty Images as their London creative photographer. At that time, he got to roam the world photographing everything for their creative needs. Now he's working for some of the biggest agencies and brands in the world, shooting advertising campaigns and helping companies see their ideas come to life. Companies like Adidas, Nike, Sky, BBC and Puma. And after all that, I saw a quote from Michael that read, it is this personal photography which is shaping up to be the most exciting. To say I'm wrapped to have Michael Bland with me right now is an understatement. Michael, welcome, mate. Hey, hi, Andrew. Mate, is that true? Like, is your personal work, does that inspire you more than the commercial work that you do? I think with most photographers, once you sort of, you know, progress through your career, that actually your commercial work and your personal work kind of start to become closer and closer together. And, you know, it's actually your personal work that people who are commissioning you for commissions and things like that that actually that's what they love about you. And, you know, so they kind of pick you for your personal work and try and bring some of that into the commercial element of what they're asking you to shoot. So brands like Adidas or Puma, I thought Puma would see, okay, Michael Bland, he's shot for Adidas. He must be good. I love his photography. Let's get him in to do something for us. So it's not like that. Are you saying they see your cycling photography and think that's what we want? Well, I think it's a bit of both, you know, that what they do is they love you for your personal work. And so they kind of almost they don't turn a blind eye to what they're trying to do but what they love about your personal work they want to bring a little bit of that into the commission and so they pick you for that reason and eventually what happens is these two things start to come closer and closer together so your personal work and your commissioned work starts to look 
more and more alike. And so, you know, like for the mountains work, you know, you might be then brought in to say do, you know, a running or a sports shoot within a mountain environment. And so the two start to look very similar. So what came first for you? Was it the personal work or was it the work for the big brands that got you more work for the big brands? It was a bit of both in fairness. You know, I've been very lucky in my career in terms of how it's developed. You know, I started out as a printmaker at university and then kind of went into an advertising environment as a studio manager before eventually becoming a photographer. So when I became a photographer, I literally decided to go freelance and got picked up by Getty Images, who offered me a placement, being their kind of photographer, shooting all their creative stuff. And so that kind of molded me a lot. And it also exposed me to, you know, good brands and stuff like that. So then when I left there, I managed to pick up those commissions quite quickly. And so, yeah, I've always sort of been quite fortunate in that way in that, yeah, I've sort of managed to get into the big brands quite easily. And I think once you get established, then it's a lot easier. It's making that first break that's the really hard thing. So what was the first break? Was it getting into Getty Images or was it getting one of the brands when you started working for yourself? I think Getty Images, really. You know, it's so hard to get that regular work when you're first starting out. And the natural route for most people is to go and assist other photographers and then hopefully pick up commissions that way. But, you know, I got into Getty Images when digital photography was first kicking off. And so there was this massive expense of buying digital cameras every year that were going out of date. So I managed to sit out all of that because they bought all the cameras for me and updated them year on year. And so while I was there, because I was shooting for their creative library, we'd be shooting, you know, still life one week, we'd be going off to Europe to shoot a lifestyle shoot, or we'd go off to Argentina in the winter to shoot you know, sports shoots. I remember like we closed down like a five-lane highway in Buenos Aires and did a marathon mock-up shoot there, which was really good, you know. And as for someone who'd only really been in the game for two or three years, I mean, that was, you know, a big shoot, you know. amazing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I was very fortunate in that way. And so that gave me a lot of broad experience. And so I was very fortunate. And that's the sort of experience that, you know, if you're going down the conventional route of freelancing with a you know another photographer and assisting that way that you just don't get those big breaks or those big shoots as early in your career as I was lucky enough to do my understanding is Getty Images is still like one of the biggest agencies today yeah but it sounds to me like these days most photographers are freelance and they send their photos to be are they they licensed or used by Getty's or let Getty's licenses them for use to other companies is that the way it works now Yeah, I mean, that's always the way it's worked. But when I joined Getty, they had this thing called the Holy Own program, which was basically meant that they were producing their own content to sell on their own website. That's since finished. So the model that you've just described is what the majority of photographers do now. And, you know, that's a lot harder now because you have to fund those shoots yourself and then hope that you sell those images and get a royalty back on them. So you were an actual employee for Getty's? Yes, Yes. And, you know, people say, oh, you know, Getty, it's the big bad guy of the photography industry. But, you know, I would never say that about Getty because (laughs) they gave me such a brilliant opportunity. And, you know, they're a good way of sort of earning an income as well, you know, through your royalties and stuff like that. So, yeah, I can't put them down. 
for sure. Yeah, I can see you've had a totally different experience to what I say. A modern or a new photographer coming into the industry would experience. Yeah. So do you still submit photos to Gettys? Yeah, I've still got stuff on there. Obviously, don't do anywhere near as much as I used to, mainly because my other work occupies more of my time. But yeah, I've still got work in Getty. Okay. So talk to me about the mountains project. How did that start and why start it in the first place? I think the mountains project actually came off the back of Getty, really. When I left Getty, I had been, because we were shooting so many different styles week in, week out, and it kind of lost me a little bit as a photographer of who I was. You know, I had this broad range of experience, but I wasn't really sort of producing stuff that was true to myself. And so the mountain project came out of an idea that I just wanted to do personal work. And it also coincided with a shoot I did for Shimano in Mallorca. And they needed some landscapes shot as sort of extra shots for this campaign that they were running. And so I shot these landscapes and I started to think about cycling and landscape work and photography and thought there might be a bit of mileage in there. And basically, I started to do these shots and I kind of realised that the majority of cycling shots that you saw were shot by sports photographers following the race. And so what these guys were doing were they were on the back of a motorbike and if they wanted a landscape shot or a, a wider shot of the race, they had merely a few seconds to jump off the motorbike, stand at the side of the road, shoot the peloton as it came past or looking down on them and then jump back on the bike. But they never had that opportunity to sort of take more time and basically get away from the road and everything else. And so I started to think, well, OK, you know, let's let's try and sort of treat this subject in a more classical way and start to shoot the mountains and take a bit more time over this. So I would basically go up these climbs and then there was a lot of hiking involved and it was all about getting away from that road and putting everything into a kind of context so that you saw the race within the context of this whole mountain rather than at the side of the road and focusing on the action. And so that was kind of where that project started to get going. And so I started to do like more test shoots. I remember I went off to Italy and did one and thought, yeah, there's mileage in that. And then slowly I started to build up a portfolio, which at this stage was purely for my personal needs and stuff. It never had a a book or anything as an end result. When you say, well, when you use the word mileage, what do you mean by that? Because this is in the early days. So you've been to Italy, you've done some photos for Shimano. What do you mean by the term mileage? Well, you know, you start out on personal projects. You don't really know where they lead you. So this was, you know, I didn't really know whether I would even be personally interested in the stuff that I shot. But when I started to do it, you could suddenly see that actually, yeah, this was interesting. And, you know, it was personally interesting to me and was basically the impetus to me to want to make a bigger portfolio of this work. And what I also realised was that there was a bit of a kind of retrospection for me as well, because when I got into cycling in the mid 80s, I used to sit there and watch, you know, Channel 4's coverage of the Tour de France. And all these climbs used to have these names like Lazarde Den or, you know, the Coldest Hormonet. But I didn't have any kind of knowledge about where these climbs were in relationship to Europe or what mountain range. And so there was a little bit of 
kind of self-fulfillment in terms of visiting these places that I, I knew of as a kid. And so, you know, there was a second part to this project that was satisfying in that actually it was almost like a mapping process for me. And so I was learning about all these places and putting basically a picture to the name again. And so in terms of, you know, had mileage and fulfillment, it was on two different levels, really, in terms of both photographically and also personally. Right. So one thing I left out of the intro is that, you know, you were a mad keen cyclist. I mean, you had dreams of actually riding in the Tour de France yourself. Is that right? Yeah, I think like most kids, though, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I had any real opportunity to do that. Interestingly, actually, I came out to Australia when I finished my schooling and I was meant to go to university and and knock that one on the head and came out to Australia and raced on the team out there for a year in Queensland. But it was after that race, rode a few big races like the Golden West Tour and stuff out there, which was a big nine day stage race. After that and sort of seeing another 19 year old Australian kiddie up at the front of the peloton and me hanging on the back, I I kind of realised the game was up a bit for me. So that's (laughs) when I returned to England and became more interested in my studies again. Unreal, unreal. Just back to the word mileage that you use there, you know, take me back to the time when you were shooting in Italy or the, even the first few shots for Shimano and you look at the photos, you feel passionate about them, they look fantastic and you know, that word mileage springs into my mind. Do you start to think about publishing those already? Are you thinking about selling those photos or sending them to Gettys or you know, is there any financial gain to be had at that stage or is it purely personal work at that time? Initially not, but as soon as you build a portfolio, you start to see how things can come together. And as that portfolio grew, I started to actually make it into a physical portfolio in terms of printing them and putting them in a book, like as in a mock-up book. And then I got introduced to a guy at Thames and Hudson who basically got it. He was interested in cycling. And although Thames and Hudson was, you know, traditionally a publisher that dealt with art books and things like that and not cycling or sport. Um, It was kind of a slightly difficult proposition for them because they didn't really know where to place this, but he really loved the work and could see that cycling was really taking off in the UK and that there's maybe a, a good spot for Thames and Hudson to look at doing more of this stuff. So he then presented it to the board and that's when the ball really started to get rolling from that point on. Okay. So at that stage, has anyone else seen these photos? Um, only friends and stuff. And I have very good contacts within cycling. And, you know, I knew of a guy called Andrew Deprose who worked for Condé Nast title, Wired. And he's a really good editor and designer. And he also produced a magazine, a cycling magazine on the side that I actually had submitted to previously. And so the two of us started to get together and I also had a journalist friend who was a cyclist and we started talking around the subject and getting a little bit deeper about it. And so the three of us basically came together um, with Susanna Osborne as the journalist and then Andrew Deprose as the designer. And so that's when the book really started to take shape. Okay, so I'm curious now. So you go to see, is it Thames and Hudson? Yeah, Thames and Hudson. And they're excited about doing a book. Do they care that you know, you've already had, say, some photos published in a magazine or that you're looking at doing this. Do they want to step in and take over or do they care that other people have seen some of these photos already? No, they're really good, Thames and Hudson. They understand the value of having good people on board, such as Andrew and Susanna. And 
what's good about Thames and Hudson is they understand the commercial value of doing something. And so they're kind of almost the break on you getting too creative or going too off piece to make something uncommercial. So in that respect, they're very useful in that process. You know, they'll advise and steer. So there were things in the book such as like doing the climb profiles and the maps at the back, which I personally was never that keen on. But they said, look, guy, people will buy the book and will be interested in the book if you also include these maps and these profiles. So, you know, everyone sort of plays a part in that process of making a good book. Sure. So when you went to Thames and Hudson, did you already have Andrew and Susanna on board? They came in very early. The initial meeting was with a guy called Lucas there, and we talked about it, and he got approval from the board. And then I brought in Andrew and Susanna. He was already actually aware of Andrew's work anyway, because Andrew's quite well known within the industry. Okay, And then Susanna was the journalist behind the copy in the book. Yes, yes. And that was an interesting story as well, because... You know, it's all very well making a pictorial book, but actually we felt that those pictures could have more meaning and be more interesting if we could put some sort of copy to that. And so that's when we started to think about, well, what could that copy be? And Susanna wrote a very good introduction to the book. And then we started to think about it'd be really nice to get some professional cyclists or ex-professional cyclists involved and get their thoughts and feelings on some of these climbs to give it a bit more depth. And so we started to think, oh, who can write really well and can say something interesting? So, you know, there's people like Michael Barry and Pippa York, who's, you know, previously known as Robert Miller. Um, So we approached them and they were really keen to do it and wrote brilliant stuff. And suddenly it was like, actually, this stuff's really good. You know, we need more of this. And then so through our contacts, that's when we started to approach more cyclists you know, such as Roman Bardet and Greg LeMond and all those guys and got their thoughts and feelings on riding mountains and stuff like that. You know, from that point of view, it was another one of those ticks in the box for me because, you know, I used to watch the cycling as a kid and, you know, would be in awe of the likes of Stephen Roach and Robert Miller and all these guys. So then to eventually sort of, you know, be picking up the phone and having one-to-one conversations with them, you know, it's a kind of dream come true. Wow, amazing, amazing. So it sounds like as a photographer, though, this thing sort of gained momentum. And I don't want to say it sort of ran away from you, but I mean, how did you feel as a photographer? You started out shooting these as a book for yourself, a pictorial book. And next thing you've got a designer, which of course you've got to have at some stage, but then you've got lots of copy, you've got maps, you've got profiles of the mountains. Did you feel like it was running away from you or were you happy with every decision that got made? No, I don't think it was running away from me. I was very happy with it. And, you know, it was actually gratifying because I could see how this could also not just be, you know, an indulgence, but could actually be commercially viable as well. You know, it's very hard to make a picture book that's going to sell in any great numbers. But I think, you know, that it suddenly became slightly timeless because of what the way we were shooting, because we weren't shooting the action and, you know, it was more general. And it was almost like an anthology of all these climbs. And so, you know, I don't think it ever ran away from me. It was, you know, I could see that it was commercial and it was doing my career a lot of good in terms of profile and things like that. The only thing I would say is that actually I thought the photography would be the hard bit and the time consuming bit. But it was actually putting the thing together that took an awful lot of effort and time that I never really envisaged at the start. Wow, I can't believe that. Like you basically followed the tour to get these images over three years. 
let me bring you back to putting it together in just a second. I want to take you back to when you first started to put the portfolio together and you said that you started to put together a book. You started to print some of the images and started to organize layouts. Was that just you at that stage? And how much of the book or the photography had been completed when you started to put that portfolio together? Yeah, I mean, it was a sort of, I started to do it straight away. I mean, as a photographer, it's really useful to print stuff to actually look at work. I mean, people get so used to viewing things on the screen. And I started my career as a printmaker. I used to do like silk screens and etchings and lithographs and things like that. So I've always been, you know, interested in print. And then also the camera I was shooting on, I shot on both a Hasselblad and a Phase 1, mainly on the Phase 1. And, you know, this is a big format camera with a very large sensor. And so I'd always envisaged this work as very large prints. So, you know, initially I started to run these prints out and you get a much better view of the work when you see it in print form than when you just see it on the limitations of a screen and the size of a screen. So, sure, when I was shooting stuff, you get excited about the work you were shooting. So you'd want to print it out and have a look and, you know, tape a few up onto the wall in your office and things like that and start to build this kind of picture and see how all these elements can come together. And you also started to realise that, oh, I've got loads of France, or I've got loads of Italy, but I've got very few shots of Spain or wherever. And you started to sort of realise and draw up lists about the places that you wanted to visit and the missing links and things like that. So it was kind of, it was progressive in the way that that portfolio came together. Wow, yeah, amazing. So you mentioned France, Italy, Spain, so the places or countries with all the grand tours. Did you finance this whole thing yourself, like heading off to these countries to go and shoot? Yeah. Yeah. It's... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, it's not that expensive to go to Europe, you know. Yeah, but it is to have three weeks off at a time to go and shoot. Yeah, no, I wasn't following the tour for the whole duration. So you'd go and pick a week or something that, you know, you wanted to target and also, you know, a lot of the time I was camping as well. So I'd drive up to the mountains, camp on the side of the mountains. And, you know, that made it fairly affordable as well. So really, you were talking about your petrol down there and, you know, your food and stuff that you could throw in the back of the car. So but I mean, in fairness, yeah, it's not cheap to do it. And I was very lucky that my commercial work was also good and was allowed me to fund this personal project. Nice. And I know you've got a family, so like, what did they have to say about you know, heading off to go and do these personal shoots? Well, that's why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got kids. Are you still married? Yeah, yeah just about. <laughs> no, um, they're very supportive, actually. You know, And I used to do a lot more cycling and stuff previous to having kids. And then when the kids came, I had to knock that on the head. So this was really the first thing that I started to do once the kids became a little bit older you know they were like sort of three and four when I started to do this project so it was a bit more manageable at that point but yeah it did take a lot of support from a family as well wow I would do want to come back to the book but you mentioned you started shooting with the Hasselblad and then you went to the phase one did you start using the phase one because it was given to you no, it wasn't given to me, but I'd always used phase one back to rigidly and then went over to a Hasselblad. But I actually then bought the new phase one and it's such an amazing camera and the software is so amazing. And it was a bit of a game changer because they started to use a CMOS sensors. So I was right on the limits of what I could do with the Hasselblad at times. 
And then when they brought in the Seamoth sensor on the phase ones, that was a bit of a game changer because it allowed me to shoot faster shutter speed, but still, you know, good depth of field and things like that. What did they have before the CMOS? I can't remember. Uh, is it OCD? CCD? CCD. Yeah. So, you know, you were slightly limited because you used to get too much noise at an ISO over 200 and things like that. So... You know, the CMOS sensors handle that much better. You know, you can shoot at 400, 800 ISO. So it made my life a lot easier, basically. So when you look through the book now, I know you know which camera you shot with, but can you tell which camera, you know, whether it was the Hasselblad or the Phase 1? Um, on certain images, yes. Yeah, for sure, you know. Um, you know, stuff on the Von 2, which is originally shot on the Hasselblad, you can really see the fidelity in that. CCD sensor and it's brilliant in really good light but you know as an overall thing the CMOS was you know much more you know versatile as the back right okay talk me through let's use Monvon 2 because that's the ad that fe or the mountain that features in the ad for phase one and I can link to that in the show notes so just talk to us about one or two of those shots that you created on that mountain so you said you basically drive up in a camper van and then you said there's some yeah. hiking involved what are you carrying with you for one of these photos Pretty much all my kit, you get used to carrying quite a lot of weight. So, you know, obviously tripods, the, the camera, seven or eight lenses, depending on the distance, invariably a laptop as well, which I'll shoot tethered to. Out in the field, you're shooting tethered? Yeah, yeah. Why do you do that? Because it gives you a lot more control and you can see what you're doing. You've got to understand, you know, for all my commercial work, we generally shoot tethered. So it's a fairly natural process for me to shoot tethered. And it doesn't matter how good you think the images that you see on the back of a digital back are, you get a much better view if you're shooting into a laptop and you can kind of see where that image can eventually go as well. So, yeah, you could check focus, everything much more clearly like that on a laptop. I mean, it's a slow process as well. So, you know, you're not in any rush because you're not trying to shoot sport or anything like that. So, you know, you have the time to set up and what you're doing is you've got to remember that you really only have one opportunity when a race comes past to get one shot. So it's not like you're trying to get 100 shots a day or anything like that. So it's a slow process. So the laptop's not a natural thing to use in that situation, I think. Sure. So when you climb up the mountain and you know that the, so the Tour de France, for example, is coming up Mont Ventoux, you're scanning at one location to get one photo for that one day. Yeah. Okay. What goes into finding that location? Like, what are you looking for? Are you doing research beforehand? Are you just driving, having a look? Are you in a helicopter beforehand? Like, what are you doing to find your spot? There's a bit of everything, actually. I mean, I know previously, before going out to locations to do shooting, I would be on Google and Google Maps and looking at, you know, satellite images about where you could potentially walk to get the right viewpoint. But then obviously, when you get there, you know, things are different. You suddenly realize that a line of trees completely obscure your view or something. So generally what I'm doing is doing driving up the mountains or cycling up the mountains. I actually found cycling was very good because it was the right pace. You could pull over, take a view and go, okay, yeah, if I climb up onto that ridge, then I'll get a good view back there and the sun will be coming over at the right time of day. And so there was a bit of that involved in terms of reconnaissance once you're there. And then when you're actually going to do the shoot, you're looking at the time of day that you want to shoot. And then invariably, it involves a lot of hiking, you know, 
I got quite into my hiking in the mountains and, you know, gone through a few pairs of shoes and stuff like that doing it. So, Well, I've ridden up Vontu a few times and I know it's like it's a rugged mountain and I can't imagine dragging a laptop and a phase one and a bunch of lenses and a tripod and all over that mountain. That's a feat in itself. <laughs> you deserve those shots. Yeah. Well, I've been there a few times and in fact, I got commissioned to go there for Rouleur magazine as well in February. And so drove up there and the barrier was down at Chalet Reynard. So I was like, oh, I'm going to have to hike all the way from Chalet Reynard to the top, which is quite a decent hike. And I remember when I got up to the top, I've been there about 20 minutes. And then suddenly the French Foreign Legion came marching up <laughs> and they were like, what are you doing up here? I was like, well, I'm just taking photos. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you put yourself out there a little bit. Is that the year when they actually closed the race from going to the top because it was too windy? Well, that was actually in February, but then I went back later in the year to shoot some more stuff. And yeah, that was the year when it was very windy. And that was funny because everyone was set up ready for the race to come past on the upper slopes on the scree. And then they suddenly announced that the race was going to be finishing below Chalet Reynard. And it was quite funny because there was mass panic from all the camper vans who had been there for about a week waiting for this race. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it was chaotic that day, because everyone tried to cram into the last two kilometres of, you know, the race up to Chalet Reynard. And were you shooting that day? Were you looking to get a landscape? Yeah, I did get some shots, but they weren't quite what I was after, I must admit. So, but that's the game, you know, there's a lot of disappointment when shooting mountains, it can come from the weather or whatever reason. So you have days that you went out there and you put all that effort into finding that spot and failed to come away with something usable. Oh God, yeah, many times. It's like, for some reason also, when the races go past at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, it seems like the weather always turns on you or the sun goes in and you're just like, oh, it's been beautiful all morning. I remember when we shot on the Col de Wizard, it was like that. I was waiting for the tour to come up. And when it came past, it was like this big black cloud and it just looked really drab and boring. <laughs> oh, no. So, and I, I've been to Italy and places, you know, because it was, for me, it was important to shoot these mountains through the whole season and show them that as the constant sort of thing. And so I'd go out to Italy in like, you know, early March or something like that. And you wouldn't be able to get up the climbs because of snow or it'd just be fog and you wouldn't be able to see like 20 feet in front of you. So, yeah. So what do you do on days like that? Do you think, okay, I'm going to change my game plan. I'm just going to go for something else or you just pack up and go home? You try to, but invariably it's not what you're after. So, you know, you kind of sit it out and hope the weather's going to change. But invariably in places like the Dolomites, when you get weather like that, it stays there for the week. Mm -hmm. And you just have to take it on the chin, basically, and come back another day. Wow. What size files are you working with for the you know, all these images that you're getting, say, from the phase one? Well, the raw file is about 50 meg, but when you process it out, it's about 112 meg. But I've been making some very large prints, like, you know, a metre and a half wide sort of thing. And that was kind of how I always envisaged this work being seen. So subsequently, there's been quite a few exhibitions and stuff like that that's come off the back of it. Wow, nice. That's unreal. And is there much work in post for these style of images or is, you know, what you saw is what I get? I get asked that quite a lot. And I don't use Photoshop too heavily. I like for people to believe that what they're looking at is what was there on the day. I don't like, you know, skies that have been burnt in and look really dramatic. I find it a bit heavy. I guess my aesthetic is very sort of classical. So, you know, there's a few tweaks here and there, and you might sort of simplify shots or make them more classical in their approach, and whether that's cropping or whatever. But I don't go too heavy on it. Right. 
And, you know, you talked about having the copy, you know, from these famous cyclists, you know, present and past. Do those guys and the girls, do they have to be paid or do they just do it as a favour? Like, How does that work? To be honest, I think we're really privileged to be involved with the sport that we are involved in because I think cycling and to be a cyclist, you have to be very grounded because it's such a hard sport. So what you find is the people that have become pros are very grounded people and they're happy to help. They're not like footballers who are a bunch of prima donnas <laughs> and want payment for everything. So there was a couple of people that I paid a small amount of money to, but they weren't big. But then you get, you know, people like Andy Hampston or Greg LeMond, who, you know, pillars of the sport. You know, I can remember setting up the interview with Greg. Uh, he didn't want payment. And it's quite a nice story, actually, because we eventually got to speak and he was on the way to the airport. And he said, look, I've got 45 minutes. I'm going to the airport. Is that enough? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. So we got chatting. He told me all about his career and what he likes and stuff like that, about the mountains. And then he pulled up outside the airport and said, look, I've got this internal flight. I'll give you a call back once I land. And literally an hour later, he gave me a call back and we spoke for another half hour. And, you know, you just wouldn't get that from a lot of sportsmen. So in terms of you know, I was really privileged that that was able to happen. But I think it was also partly because I've been around the sport, I've got quite a few contacts within the sport and referrals. And, you know, you'd interview one person like Paul Sherwin and he'd say, look, I'll put you in touch with Alan Piper. And so there was always this kind of referral, which kind of helped the process. Right. So how would those referrals happen? Would that be via email and they copy you in or does Paul ring someone and then get them to call you? Yeah, a bit of both, actually, you know, normally with an email and because also, you know, we're starting to build the book and had some test pages, you could show them what you were doing and they could see that it was a good project. Other people like Roman Bardet, I'd photographed him for Ruler magazine and so had gone out, out to France to meet him anyway. So we knew each other and he was more than happy to do something. You know, he wrote his own piece as well, rather than us uh, sort of interview and pen something from it. So and people like uh, Pippa York, um, she she wrote some brilliant pieces, you know, totally off her own back and same with Michael Barry. So, you know, it's a mixture of everything. Wow. So then what is Susanna's role in the book? If now she's the writer, does she take the audio that you've recorded or the notes that you've taken and then turn that into something readable? Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, you come away with a lot more footage than you actually need. So it's a case of distilling that down and making it into something that's more in line with the book because you don't want it just to be a, a transcript of what we spoke about. Okay. I want to interrupt this interview with Michael to tell you a little bit more about the Image Salon, who are the sponsors for today's episode. And without their support, the Photography Experiment podcast wouldn't be able to happen. Now, you would have heard me talking about the Image Salon in the past. And if you are a listener to the Photo Biz X podcast, you will have heard their name being shouted out by a bunch of previous interview guests who all use the Image Salon to do their post-production. And one thing that I hear from the guests and these are big-name guests, people like Two Man Studios, Gabe McClintock, who you'll hear from after the closing credits for today's show, Berber Risti and Edwina Robertson, they all say the same thing. When they started using the Image Salon, clients didn't even know. The clients had no idea that someone else was doing the post-production. So the question from each of those guests was, why wouldn't you outsource? Why not free up that time to go and do the things that you love or 
to focus more on building your business rather than spending time in front of the computer doing post-processing. It just makes total sense to pass that onto a company that can produce the kind of work that you're used to producing for your clients in a way that your clients will never ever know. And that's exactly what the Image Salon does. And the reason, the reason they can do that for you is because you are assigned your very own editor. English speaking, talented photographer, knows what they're doing editor. And once you have your editor, you work with that same editor throughout your time with the Image Salon. So if you make subtle changes to your style, if you want to tweak the way your images look, you talk to your editor and he or she will make those changes and keep that going on throughout the work that you send to the Image Salon. It really is like having your very own employee. If you haven't tried outsourcing, you've got to give it a go and you've got to put the Image Salon to the test. If you are a new client to the Image Salon and you're hearing this announcement, you get 50% off your first order. And if you are a regular client already, you can get 15% off your very next order. Just use the promo code BIZX15. BIZX15 if you're an existing client. And if you're a brand new client, let them know you heard about this announcement here and you get 50% off that first order. Now one of the new things that they are introducing right now is when you become a new member, you go into a kickoff call and during that call, this is totally free, one of the onboarding team from the Image Salon will do some live edits on a bunch of images that you send them. So they're gonna sit with you while they do the edit online on that call so they can get a good idea of exactly what you want right from the start. <laughs> That's so good. It's like training one of your own staff members to get the look that you want. Now if you want to find out more, if you want to put these guys to the test, just simply go to theimagesalon.com. They are an amazing team of photographers and editors. They can give you the look that you want for your photos as well. You, know, you don't have to have a look like one of the world's best known photographers. You can go with your style and it doesn't matter whether it's bright and airy, whether it's dramatic or punchy, whatever you want to go for, that's what you can have. And if you're unsure, you can talk to the editor and settle on a look that you're happy with and start there and then develop your style as you go. So again, if you want to learn more and if you want to put these guys to the test, go to theimagesalon.com. All right, let's get back into this interview with Michael Bland. Talk to me about that process because you said the most time-consuming part was actually putting the book together. So you don't just hand the copy and the photos over to Andrew, I think it was, and he designed something? Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of the work was actually editing that copy, transcribing that copy. So, you know, I was involved in that with Susanna. It was, you know, she would do all the cleaning up, but I would sort of have a say in how it sort of finished up as well. So there was all that part to it, which actually took quite a long time because you're waiting for slots to talk to people and meet people to interview them. And then obviously there's a bit of toing and froing over the actual design of the book with the publishers and you lay things out and you go, oh, we're missing some important climbs. We need to go and shoot them or, you know, that we need to change the infographics at the back. And there's also just all the captioning and stuff, you know, you don't appreciate that if you've got 250 images in a book you know each image has to be captioned and then the content's written so at Thames and Hudson you have people looking after this bit but you have to give them the information and you need to like look for all the information and verify like 
factual stuff such as the height of climbs, the distance and all that sort of stuff. So there's an awful lot of other work that you don't appreciate that just sits there in the book, you know. When did you realize that there was going to be all this extra work? Did it ever feel like, man, I just wanted to take photos? <laughs> <laughs> well, I must admit, we had a Christmas deadline to do all the photography and I was like, right, it's over. And then the thing was like, Oh, no, it's not over. It's just begun. So <laughs> I can't remember when the final deadline to get everything to the printers was. But, you know, what's good about actually having a publisher is that they set deadlines because I think I would have gone on for years doing this, you know, shooting more mountains and it would never have had a conclusion. And even though the book's finished now, you know, shots that I've taken that I would like to see in the book, but that's just part of the process. You have to put a stop to it at some point. For sure. What now? Do you keep shooting mountains because it was a personal project or does this get compartmentalised and put aside and you move on to another project? No, I have still been shooting mountains simply because, you know, it interests me. Like last year I was out at the Giro and the Tour again, you know, because it's a bit easier as well. You can get accreditation so you can at least take a car onto the race and things like that and, you know, get to the spots where you need to be. So I'm still shooting stuff. Work's coming off the back of that as well. So you know, doing a lot more editorial off the back of that as well. So I think it will be probably a project that I'll keep going with forever, if I'm honest with you. You know, there was talk about maybe doing a Lux version of the book, which was limited edition to, say, three or 500 copies and making it bigger and, you know, add some more climbs and interviews in there. Whether that happens, we'll see. I'm not sure at the moment. <laughs> I need a break at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. You talked about these other opportunities coming up, these editorial work, because I've seen some work for you with, I think, Sky, Team Sky, and other cycling teams as well. You mentioned Ruler Magazine. So is this the sort of stuff now that happens because of the personal project? Yeah, I mean, the brilliant thing about doing this project was that it's really good for your awareness. So, you know, I've known as this guy that shoots the mountains and cycling. And so, yeah, I mean, I get work off the back of that quite regularly now. But also, you know, there's other people contacting me for work, which isn't necessarily cycling related, but it's mountain related. So, you know, I had a French bank commission me to shoot mountains and things like that. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So how does the agency for the French bank find you? Is it because of the book? Invariably, it's because someone likes cycling and they've seen your your images somewhere <laughs> so and go, wow. right, I want to use that guy. He's going to be good for that, you know. And I mean, it had an awful lot of exposure as well, the book, you know, people like the BBC were picking it up. And so, you know, their reach and their feed goes a long way and it extends beyond the kind of cycling community. And I think the book's done that to a large extent because it's not... 100% about cycling and action and the sport. It sits slightly above all that. It's a landscape book at the end of the day with a cycling reference. And so I think it appeals to quite a broad audience. Absolutely, yeah. I've only seen it online and from everything that I've seen, it looks just amazing that the photography is just yeah, phenomenal. And being a cycling lover, it just blows me away. So when you first saw it, did you get it delivered to home? Did you see it in a shop? Where did you first see the finished book? They had a mock-up done because what they have to do, the publishers produce mock-ups to then sell at uh, the various book fairs. Like there's big book fairs in Germany where they basically try to co-edition the book. So the book got translated also into Dutch, German, French, and there was American version, English version, and then also Rafa did their own version of the book as well. So I saw that mock-up, but then really the first time that you get to see all of them is when they get delivered to your door. 
and you have one of each copy and you know you've got the french and the dutch and everything there sat in front of you and what's actually quite interesting is i don't know if you noticed but on the french version on all the copies there's a, a shot of mon bon too and in the bottom right corner is a couple sat there with a portuguese flag or bass flag and so each edition most of the you know the dutch use the same image but then the french got it and they basically took out the flag because they couldn't handle having a Portuguese flag <laughs> on the front cover. Did they really? Uh, yeah. so did they change the flag or they took it out altogether? No, they just took it out. So that, yeah, the couple were sat there uh, flagless, oh. basically. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so French. <laughs> yes, exactly. And in fact, actually, the Germans, they didn't go with that image at all. They used one from uh, Bjorka and Sarkolobra. Okay, so they got to choose their own cover. Yes, and it wouldn't be my choice, but it still works really well, actually, as um, a cover. Right, okay. So I'm not disappointed. Is this your first book? Yes. So how did it feel, like, getting that parcel, that package, and opening up and seeing your own book? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, I think, you know, most photographers want to do a book at some stage. And so it's a kind of dream come true for a lot of photographers. And I'm really happy with how it looked and how it came out and the fact that, yeah, actually it wasn't just you know, a pure indulgence and that it had some legs and would actually sell a few copies as well. And the sales have been very good, you know, like a book like this, the publishers would go, well, if we sell 5,000 copies, we're doing okay. And it actually sold like 20,000 copies in the first year. Wow. So congratulations. Yeah, the publishers are really happy. You don't make any money out of books in case anyone. <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. You must be loaded now. <laughs> no, no. I won't tell you the figures, but no, I still haven't paid back what I put into the project. So. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on a little bit from the book, just while we've got a, a little bit of remaining time. You know, when I look at your website and I see, um, let me give you one example. So in your portfolio section, there's some headshots there and the title is Knock Knock. Is that a brand or is that a company? Yeah, that's a company that commissioned me to do that shoot. Right. Okay, so these headshots, I mean, these look different to, I guess, most headshots that a company would use for their, I don't know, for their website or for whatever they're going to be using them for. What were they using these for? Do you remember? Yeah, they were used for their, they were rebranding their company. And so the Knock Knock was about personal identity or security and identity. And so the idea of these portraits was to really get to the heart and soul of someone. So that's why we shot them in the way that we did with this very shallow depth of field and this style of lighting that really sort of makes you look into the eyes and the personal identity of people. And that's also why we use the people that we use. They're kind of ordinary people rather than models that you might normally use for a commission shoot. So, you know, that was, again, it was talking about individuals and personalities, basically. These headshots, I mean, you describe them well in this super shallow depth of field. You just focus on the face and almost nothing else, but they're just beautiful, but they're not your standard headshot. So with these people, you said they're normal people. Are they from the company or are they brought in for an advertising campaign? No, I mean, we do cast them from some agencies, but you don't go to those traditional model agencies. You go to agencies that are sort of everyday people. And some of them are people that I knew the second person there, the guy with the beard, he was actually a furniture maker that made some furniture for me. And I asked him if he'd be one of the models. Some of them I've worked with at previous agencies and stuff. So there's a mixture of people in there. 
Okay, how do you get to the stage where, or what was the process like to be able to submit this style of image? I mean, is this something that you saw or did you have an art director that said, this is what we want? Uh, it's something that you sort of develop over time. And, you know, having a studio, you do testing as well with lighting and you do see things, you take influence from things. But I've done a, probably a test shoot and then the agency saw this and said, oh, yeah, actually, that's the perfect style for what we're trying to do. And in fact, one of my big clients, I've recently done a big campaign for them that will go up in Heathrow Airport, which uses this style of photography too. Wow. Does it sound weird to you saying my photography is going to be hanging in Heathrow Airport? Like it blows me away. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it's always good to see your work out there being used as well, you know, whether it's in a printed magazine or up in the street or wherever. But, you know, obviously Heathrow is quite a high profile. Yeah. How do you price a job like that? <laughs> That's a dark art. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the set standards about, you know, pricing for photography is generally down to the usage. So if it has a really big, big exposure, such as billboard posters, then it costs more basically to commission a photographer. Do you charge a different price for the actual shoot or you just charge for the licensing, charge more? So you have a day fee and then you have a licensing fee. But in the case of, say, someone like they like to basically buy out the image. So they will do that and own the image forever. So that actually, was that buying the copyright or unlimited usage rights? It's unlimited usage rights. You generally keep the copyright. I'm not really sure why, but you do. <laughs> it just basically means that they can't resell it. That's the only stipulation. But they can use it forevermore for whatever usage they want. So they don't have to keep coming back to the photographer and saying, oh, we've realised that we want to run this campaign in Japan or wherever and then have to renegotiate. Right, okay. Do you come up with that price or do you have someone that represents you that negotiates with whoever you're dealing with? No, there's some standards which come through the kind of uh, photography organisations here about roughly what you should charge. But, you know, you have to be reasonable as well. It's like, you know, you kind of price accordingly to the company. If, if there's a company and they're a, a one-man band, and they want to get a shoot done and they want to use it for their website, you can't charge them thousands and thousands of pounds for it, you know, and it will come down to also if the project's interesting and you want to get involved. So sometimes you'll do things for nothing even, you know, if you really like a project. Editorial, for instance, there's no money really shooting editorial, but invariably the projects are really interesting. So you do it for that reason and it's good for your profile. So photography is not all about money. It's about exposure. It's about personal gratification whether you want to get involved in a project because it sounds interesting it just varies okay i want to take you back to the editorial one in just a set the point you made there about editorial but if you give them unlimited usage rights you retain copyright can you still use that image no can you even show it on your website i think my website's okay i wouldn't go beyond that though um you know at the end of the day they've bought the image and it's theirs basically but i've been really fortunate with that company because they're a really great company to work for and the style of photography that I've shot for them is exactly what I would like to shoot personally. So, you know, we discussed at the beginning of this chat that about how your commercial work and your personal work come together. So there's a load of stuff that I've done, which I shoot from a cherry picker looking down on street scenes and gone all around the world with them doing that. And it's absolutely what I love doing. And it's very similar to what the mountain work is in some respects. Yeah, so I read on your blog, you're actually getting a reputation and a name for shooting in that style, for being up above. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So is that something you've done consciously? Yeah, I think it comes down to the type of photography you are. I've always sort of described myself as the passive observer. So by that, I mean, 
basically there's some photographers that like to be right in amongst the action and you know part of the crowd that he's shooting for me i've always liked to take this step back and view a scene which is kind of this classical approach and so this style of photography where you're sort of detached from what you're looking at but you're looking in at it is what i'm about i guess and that work working from cherry pickers looking down this kind of spatial arrangement of people within that scene is kind of how i view the world <laughs> yeah very good that's exactly how the book is isn't it mountains it's just like that yeah exactly i mean the book was a natural progression from what i was doing in many respects wow. you said the editorial work that's the exciting stuff that's the stuff that you know i think you said uh, excites you and i think helps you get noticed i think you said what is it about yeah. editorial work that's so good or how do you define editorial work well generally with editorial work the brief is a lot looser so you know they're not saying right we need five portraits on a white background or whatever they're basically saying look we need to go out and shoot say Roman Bardet out in his house in France and we'll send a, a journalist with you and basically make up the piece and so there's a lot more freedom in what you do and in terms of how you might light and what location you might use for that shoot I mean, like typically in next month's ruler, we've got a really nice piece coming out with Sven Tuft, who writes for Orica Greenedge. Mm -hmm. And this guy is a bit of a, a nomad and a bit wild. I mean, he grew up in Canada and he became a professional very late, but he actually got a bike with a trailer and cycled up right up to Alaska a couple of times. And so he now lives in Andorra. So the brief was to go out there and shoot him in Andorra. So we said, oh, we'd like to go hiking with you. And it turns out that he likes to go barefoot and things like that. <laughs> and so we basically went hiking in the Andorra mountains with him. And we were going to stay in a refuge overnight. But the weather actually came in and it, there was like, you know, two foot of snow that night. So, you know, you can kind of see how that's quite an exciting shoot to go and do, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and that's why you get excited about those sort of editorial shoots. Let's use Raymond Bardet as an example. If you turn up to his house in France or wherever he lives with a journalist, do you take the lead first? Do you have an idea when you go in because of what you already know about him? Or do you wait for the journalist to do the interview so you get a better idea about the subject and how you want to shoot him? There's a bit of both, you know. Obviously, you're discussing with the journalist about how you see this editorial piece working out. And there's obviously a story there that they're trying to cover. So... You know, with Sven Tuft, it was very much about this wild man. With Roman Bardet, it's very much about the new French hope. And so you're trying to kind of fit the photography into that thinking. And so you do have some idea, but obviously when you get there, you don't really know what you're going to have. Like for Roman Bardet, he actually lived in a very small uh, sort of two-bedroom flat, you know. <laughs> Doesn't sound like the new French hero, does he? <laughs> no, but he lives near the Puy de Dorme and things like that. So that's interesting location. And also what we found out was that he likes to go swimming a lot. So we tried to get uh, shots of him swimming, but the pool wouldn't actually let us in. So you have a few ideas that you kind of want to try out and play with. So, you know, it's a bit of both, I think, in terms of planning and also working it out on the day. Unreal. Last question for you. You know, you come to the end of the book, it's out there, it's selling great. Who would it excite you the most to hear from in regard to a shoot? You know, you get a phone call and they say, Michael, we want you to come and shoot a project. Oh, God. That's the hardest question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know, really. There's so many people you'd like to shoot. Um, Even companies. Is there anyone that you think, yeah, I'd love to be working for them. I'd love to do a project for these guys. I think it's always good to work with those big sports brands, to be honest. You know, they generally are doing 
fairly interesting stuff and they're very creative in terms of what they do it's like you know they're innovators at the end of the day um whereas when you look at things like car brands they generally are doing the same thing every time so they're not as interesting to me as someone like a big sports brand fantastic michael the thing i didn't ask you was where we can see your book where is the best place to get it if the listener wants to check it out well you can go to my website which is fairly simple it's just michaelbland.com uh, you can buy signed copies there and also prints if you're interested. But you should be able to also buy the book in Australia from any of the big retailers out there. And dare I mention it, Amazon. <laughs> so, <laughs> Is it worse for you if someone buys it from Amazon? It's always best if they buy it from me. But to be honest, the postal rates out to Australia yeah. would probably make it prohibited. <laughs> That's for sure. So whether you buy it from Amazon or one of the big book retailers. But um, I'm always a fan of supporting the book retailers. For sure. So, yeah. <laughs> Michael, this has been a real pleasure, mate. I've had a ball talking to you. I could go for another hour, mate. Just a massive thanks and congratulations with the book. And your photography is amazing. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Cool. Thanks ever so much. Nice talking to you too. Alrighty, that is it for this episode of the Photography Experiment podcast. Michael, if you're listening, again, mate, a big thanks for coming on and sharing everything you did. I absolutely love your work. And I love the way you've built your business, mate. You are the absolute envy of so many photographers from around the world, mate. So again, thanks so much for coming on and sharing what you did. For you, the listener, if you want to see more of Michael's work, if you want to go and check out his website, his book, anything and everything that he mentioned, I've got all of that for you in the show notes for today's episode. You can find them at photobizx.com forward slash tpx23. So it's photobizx.com forward slash tpx23 and in those show notes you'll find a comments area at the very bottom so if you have a follow-up question for michael if you just want to say thanks for coming on the show anything at all leave a comment leave your feedback leave your thanks for him right there i know he'd love to see those messages and of course i can't go without saying a big thanks to the image salon for sponsoring today's episode for being a big supporter of the photography experiment podcast and supporting in a way that makes this show possible. To learn more about them, to put them to the test for your outsourcing, go to theimagesalon.com and stick around after these closing credits and the jingle, I've got a little mini interview with Gabe McClintock. All right, that's it for me. Have a fantastic week and I will talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to PhotoBizX.com. How are you, Ben? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Yeah, I'm uh, racing around like a bloody nutcase, but things are good. I think the same. I think it's... Uh... <laughs> I think that's just life now. It's I, I feel like being busy is the new normal. What about you, mate? You got stuff happening this year? Any big uh, talks or conferences or workshops? Yeah, I'm doing a couple. Like I go to um, speaking at Wedding Brazil, the end of April, which is a big one, I guess. From what I heard, a few people. There's like two and a half thousand people like in the stand in the audience, which is insane. Um, wow. I have that. I have farm shop. I'm doing. Uh, the beginning in or in beginning of March, and then I'm speaking at a conference in Paris at the end of March, and then a conference, the Wolves Workshop in Canary Islands. Awesome, great locations. 
Yeah, so it's it'll be a busy year, but it's it's manageable, which is nice. A few years ago, it wasn't that manageable. Um, it was a little too much. I took on way too much. So it's I've kind of learned from those mistakes. Nice. And are you, are you still shooting weddings as or as many weddings as you were? Yeah, like <clears throat> I think last year I did. 18 i think this year right now i have uh i think i have 16 this year so maybe a couple more if they come through but yeah it's like a few years ago i did i think i did 27 that year with like six workshops and a few conventions it was just it was too much so i've definitely toned it back toned back the speaking i think that's the biggest thing yeah nice cool I might kick it off uh, about your weddings, just to just clarify that you're still shooting. Uh, I'm still shooting. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't gone that route where I'm not shooting and now just teaching. I'm still shooting more than I'm teaching. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, it's, it's important to get that out and establish because, I mean, yeah. photographers are becoming jaded and uh, you know they hear so much about so many people teaching and not actually shooting anymore. Yeah, you know, and that's, for me, that's, uh, I don't know, you know, I love teaching, but I, I have to shoot, like, that's, that's why I'm, I'm teaching because I shoot, you know, it's, that's really the way it is for me, and I feel like, I don't know how you can teach if you don't actually shoot currently, yeah, so for me, it's, yeah, it's definitely teaching something I love to do, but no, weddings is, like, that's what I do, I'm a wedding photographer, I'm not a wedding photographer teacher. Got it, got it. So in regards to your actual photography, I mean, you, you have a pretty distinct look. I mean, I follow you on Instagram and, uh, you know, you, you have that dark, moody look. So I'm curious, why why do you even outsource your post-processing when you have such a such a specific look to your work? Uh, you know, it was, for me, time. Like, I'm not a big fan of sitting in front of my computer. Uh, it was never... Outsourcing for me and over the last however amount of years I've been doing it has never been so I could work more. It was so I didn't have to sit in my computer in front of my computer more. It was, uh, you know, it's I worked with Image Salon. You know, my editing's pretty simple. I think that's a that's a big, you know, I don't know if that's a, maybe a misconception, but I don't do a lot to my photos. Like a lot of my stuff happens in camera. Um, so the editing is pretty simple and when I worked with Image Salon and having the single editor you know she knew that when I underexposed it was because I meant to underexpose it wasn't because I screwed up right so it was thing that you know she knew when to leave it and she knew what I was doing and when I was doing it which was pretty cool for me that's the biggest thing it was just the look is the look it's something that's really a lot of it's done in camera but it was just for me not to sit in front of my computer you said she a couple of times there. Are you working with the same editor over and over? Same editor over and over again, which is awesome. Like it's, I think that is probably, for me, I think that's one of the main success or reasons of success for Michelin is that it's one editor for one photographer. Well, they obviously edit for other photographers, but for when you go in there and you start building a relationship with them, it's the same editor. So over a span of like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine weddings, they really get to know what you do really well. So it, um, so yeah, so it's one editor, which has been fantastic. I was going to ask why you use the image salon. Is that, and I, mean, I guess that's a great reason. Is that the only reason you use them? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, a, 
<laughs> no, it was, um, you know, there was a few reasons. For me, it was, you know, Damien and Daniel I've known for years, the friends, you know, the support friends, uh, you know, keep it in Canada. A big thing was the, they do, so for me in my work, when I edit, I tend to do some spot editing. So I will, you know, if I'm exposing, you know, for a highlight on, a, on the lips or something like that in camera, they, te you know, when I was editing myself, I would pop that up a little bit in post-production. Um, a lot of companies won't do spot editing. They'll do like an overall edit. Whereas, you know, the, I think I use Best Plus, the level Best Plus with them. And that actually, they'll spot edit my photos. So it's, you know, that was a huge thing for me because I would get images back from another, you know, other editing companies that I used in the past, and I would have to go in and then spot edit every photo, whereas now they do it. They do it. Do you actually pay for your editing, or do you get it for free? <laughs> <laughs> no, I... That's a, that's a fair question. I, I have to pay for it like everyone else. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Yeah, no, I don't know. It's not free. <laughs> I can send you screenshots of invoices if you want. That's no, no, okay. I believe you. I believe you. I wish, you know, if they're listening, you know, I'm all for some free editing. I'll, I will pass that on. I'll make sure that Daniel hears this. That's hilarious. <laughs> hey, uh, last question. I mean, I, I guess I totally get that you get more time. Yeah. And, and I can I know you understand and you can see the benefits for your business and your life now that you're outsourcing. Yeah. When you first decided to outsource, was it scary? And if so, how did you sort of get past that? Yeah, it was. It was yeah, it was definitely was scary. I think, you know, years and years ago, I, I find like every photographer goes, maybe it was just me, maybe it's the, the time I kind of started in the industry, but I felt like everyone was really holding on to their editing as like their key ingredient to what made them different. And I feel now, you know, at the time, no one wanted to outsource because it was like, I need the control of this and my clients are, you know, it has to be this way and I'm the only one that can do it. But now with the, you know, with develop, you know, presets and all the other presets out there, I feel the editing becomes, it can be really similar across the board and really it becomes what you're doing in the camera. So for me, yeah, there was definitely a reluctancy to letting someone have control of what I felt was so me. And I know the first few times I outsourced, I delivered the files and my clients had no idea. They had no, no one knew except for me, right? And that was a huge wake up call for me. It was like, well, I'm the only one that knows the difference that I didn't edit that picture. And, you know, why am I putting so much time, like hours into editing when I could take that time and, you know, do whatever, you know, spend more time, go skiing, go on a holiday, whatever it is. So it was one of those once I kind of realized that at the end of the day, you know, you work with a company that gets the same look as you, I was like, why wouldn't I pay that? Why wouldn't I pay that fee to have that time? For sure. Totally get it. Mate, I love your work. I love what you're doing. Where is the best place for the listener to check out your latest stuff? Oh, to well, to check out latest stuff is Instagram. That seems to be updated the most. And then the li listen, what do you mean? <laughs> Workshops, I guess, like conferences, like if they really want to, see me up on stage you know there's i usually announce that stuff through uh social media like instagram Facebook. where do we find you on instagram so it's just gabe mcclintock so at gabe mcclintock fantastic gabe mate thank you for doing this i appreciate it i'll talk to you soon cheers mate bye